We have uh, four children, quite a different stage of life than uh, your pastor, Merlin. <laughs> it's been good. It's brought back some memories of just young children, getting them all uh, together, getting even, even out the door. I was pretty impressed with how they were able to get, get them all out the door this evening. Come here. We, we had four, and it sometimes was a struggle, but our children are... Our uh, adults, uh, we have two girls and two boys. The three oldest, the two girls and one of our boys is married. Um, and they all live in central Ohio. They're not too far from us. Uh, no grandchildren yet at this point. And our youngest son is, is back living with us. We were empty nesters for just a couple of years when he was away at school. And he's back at home now and work, work, working in the community, so living with us. So, yeah, that's the, the stage of, of life that our family is in and you know, I mentioned this morning, uh, the, if I was to give a title to the series, it'd be something about, something like encountering Jesus on our journey of transformation. And I know you know this, but our family life is one of those great opportunities that Jesus uses to transform us, whether it's as young people learning to relate with our parents and our siblings and well, not just young people, that can be any time of life, relating to our parents, our siblings, and then to our children. God uses those relationships, those, those kind of relationships to really do his work in our lives, and that certainly has been the case with my I'm so grateful for my family and all that they have taught me. I don't want to entirely reintroduce the, the concept for this, uh, for this series of, of meetings, but I know most of you, if not all of you, were here this morning and heard it already, but I, I do think it's worth repeating, and, and it was mentioned by Joe as well, encountering Jesus, that that's what we want to do, that we, we don't want to just hear some words preached across the pulpit or spoke, we don't want to just hear some of my ideas, or you're, we want to encounter Jesus in a way that changes us. Encountering Jesus on our journey of transformation. This evening, our encounter with Jesus is going to take us to a setting where the tax collectors and sinners were all pressing in around Jesus and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were incensed that why would you hang around with this riffraff and, and Jesus, what he did, what he so often did. He told some stories. I love stories. I love reading stories. I love watching stories. I, I, there's something about a story that uh, drives a point home with me. I don't know if that's true of all of you. But Jesus taught with stories. And, and, and I hear sometimes, I hear sometimes people say, oh, we, we can't, too many stories in a sermon as we need to get to the meat. And I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm not a fan of shallow sermons by any stretch. But I recognize in my own life that often it's a truth that I learn in a story that really sticks with me, that really sinks in, that really finds root. And I think that's why Jesus told stories at some of the strangest times when, you know, in this case, 
He has this opportunity, I don't know, to reprimand him or whatever it might be, but he, he tells a story. He tells some stories. Luke chapter 15. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15. He actually tells three stories. We're, we're going to look at just one, and that is the story of the prodigal son. And often when we hear the story of the prodigal son, it gets a lot of attention, it really does. And often when we talk about the story of the prodigal son, our focus is on the prodigal himself, and there's certainly lessons to be learned there. Sometimes we focus on the older son, because that kind of relates to us, in that some of us that have been in the church for a long time kind of get this attitude of, uh, superiority maybe and looking down our nose at those who have made bad decisions and have done things with their life that we don't think is running away and look at me and look you know there's certainly lessons to be learned there but as I've dove into this story over and over again what really has gripped me the most is the father in the story and what the Father in the story teaches us about our Heavenly Father. And so this encounter with Jesus where he tells this story, I think Jesus is revealing a lot of things, and we could focus on a lot of things, but, but I think he's revealing something to us of the Father heart of God. So I'm going to start reading actually at verse 11. We, we will, uh, yeah, we will, will not read the, the first two stories. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Oh God, once again this evening as we reflect on your word. May your truth land on our ears 
our hearts and our minds in a way that changes us, that turns us to a new direction. We thank you. Now, I want to say before we get too far into this that we're going to see a picture of the Father in this story that is filled with compassion, with mercy. I'm not trying to say that this is the whole picture of God. I, we, we really hit it in our Sunday school class this morning. We really hit it, this thing of God being just and how he views sin and how he deals with sin. And that's a really important part of the nature of God that we have to grapple with. But there's also another part of God. And, and one of the things that strikes me so much about the, it's what makes the mercy of God stunning is the justice of God, the holiness of God. That, that God could in his mercy forgive us. Wow. wow. So we struggle as people to figure out how do these two things fit together because we, we tend to have mercy people and justice people. Either they're, they're the harsh, you know, the mercy, and we can't quite figure out how to bring grace and truth together in the perfect way that God does. But he does. Well, let's get, to the, let's get to the story here, to the picture. In this story, the younger son demands to receive his inheritance. His father's still alive. Now, according to Jewish law, a father who would have two sons, the older son would get a double portion. So if there was just these two sons, and I, maybe there was more, but in this story, it sounds like there's two sons. The older son would get two-thirds, the younger son a third. So the son comes to his dad and says, hey, I, I know you're still alive, but I want my inheritance. And we think, how absolutely rude. How could this son do this? But I wonder how often we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father. In the American church, and maybe the worldwide church, but at least in the American church, I see this so much where we take these blessings that God has given us. And then instead of staying in that relationship with the Father, and surrendering ourselves to his leadership, we take those blessings and that inheritance that we have and we walk another way. So let's not be too quick to judge the prodigal son without saying, God, do I do that? Do I demand my inheritance from you? And then turn around and walk out the door. I don't know how his father did it in this story, how he got together in some amount of time, a third of his wealth or whatever this son's portion of the inheritance was, if he had to sell some things, liquidate some, I don't know. But the son gets it and takes off. He goes out the door. And here's the first thing that surprises us about the father is he lets him go. He lets him go. God loves you 
enough to let you go. Is that right? (laughs) Surprises me about the father. Not only does he let him go, he doesn't pursue him. He doesn't go track him down. As far as we know, he doesn't even try to get in contact with him. The father lets him go. And and wait, this is a picture of our heavenly father? And doesn't that contradict the two stories before it that that represent that a lost person is worth an all-out search? So how can this be? The stories are different, though. The first one is about a lost sheep. Sheep aren't the most brilliant animals, I'm told. I never had, we didn't have sheep. We had some uh, pigs at one time. We had some cows and we had some chickens, never any sheep. But I'm told they're not the brightest of animals and, and they w- th- this would not be abnormal to wander off and get lost. And I don't, I don't, know, I, I don't know what exactly this represents, but perhaps it represents someone who wanders off carelessly not paying attention, not intentionally, but carelessly, and God, the Father, goes after them and says, then there's the story of the lost coin. Well, a coin doesn't have a choice in whether it's lost or not. So maybe the story of the coin represents those who have never heard the gospel, those who have never had that opportunity to be saved, and, and their celebration, it's worth an all-out search to find the coin. I don't know exactly. I'm not going to say that I know exactly. And I, I keep digging into this and asking God, show me more about this. And I don't know. But I do know something. The third story is about a son. A son who has known the love and provision of a good father. That's me and you. I believe the son represents me and you. Anyone who has experienced the love and provision of being a child of God. And, and, and while it breaks his heart when it happens, he is a loving father who will let you walk away from fellowship with him. Now we could get into a whole other debate about eternal security and uh, you know, the security of the believers and we're not, we're not gonna do that this morning or this evening, but but. The reality is that God will allow you to walk away from fellowship with him if you choose to do that. And probably all of us have some pain as we think about someone we know in our lives who has chosen to do that. The Bible says that God will never leave you or forsake you. It says that Satan cannot snatch you out of his hand. But it's clear as we look at scripture and as we also experience in our own lives that we are able to walk out of fellowship with him if we choose to do that. The prodigal son left the presence in the favor of his father and his father let him go. And and, and the heavenly father does that too. Why? 
Why would the father of the prodigal just let him go? Why would he let his son take advantage of him like that? Why would he, uh, why would he not at least lecture him and tell him, this is all that's going to happen to you. Don't do this. Why didn't he put his foot down and say, I'm the boss here. This is not going to happen. One of the surprising things about God, our Heavenly Father, disturbing for some people, is his refusal to step in and stop people anytime they're going to make a wrong choice. Why doesn't God do something about the evil in the world? Why doesn't he stop people from hurting each other? Why doesn't he step in and stop it when our loved ones are about to do something wrong? Why didn't he stop the man and the woman in the church that we pastored in Florida? The woman was a mentor to my wife in parenting. The, the husband was, was probably my best friend in the church, a partner in ministry. Why when he stopped, when they walked away from each other, when they separated themselves from us and from the church, and more importantly, when they separated themselves from God, why wouldn't he stop, step in and stop Couldn't he have shot a bolt of lightning out of the sky? <laughs> he could have, but he didn't. God didn't stop them for the same reason that he didn't stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit. He didn't stop them for the same reason that he didn't stop King David from sinning, committing adultery with Bathsheba. God didn't stop them for the same reason that the father in this parable didn't throw himself across the, do the, the doorway and say, no, you're not going to do this. We would like God to be more controlling when it comes to other people, at least. We would like him to stop people from walking away from fellowship with him. However, God knows that the moment that he forces us to do his will, the, the moment he turns us into little robots that have no choice, something beautiful is lost in his creation. The power of our obedience is diminished. If, on the other hand, we do the will of God willingly, out of a willing heart, we surrender our lives to him, we obey his voice, we delight the passionate heart of the Father. The awesome gift of free will that God has given us, it's an expression of his, his passionate heart. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to serve Him out of some sense of duty or wind us up like little robot toys and say, you know, now go. I, I, think, I think a lot of times He gives us what, what we want in hopes that we will want so much more. He gives us what we think we want and lets us go the direction we think we want to go, 
in hopes that we will come to the realization, as the prodigal son did, how empty this is, and that we will willingly come back to him. I, I still get incredibly discouraged when I see someone walk away from fellowship with God. I, I don't like it a bit. The couple I mentioned was years ago now, and it still tears my heart when I talk about it. But I have a little bit different perspective than I used to. And that is that as disappointing as it might be, the fact that we have a choice whether to walk in fellowship with God or to, be, to walk away from fellowship God, with God tells us something about the passionate heart of our Father. God loves you enough to let you go, but that's not the end of the story. See, God loves you enough to run towards you when you return. The wayward son didn't fare so well away from home. It was fun for a while. Jesus put it this way. He squandered his wealth in wild living. With a pocket full of money, he headed to the bars and the casinos, strip clubs, whatever it might have been, and blew all his funds. And before he could turn around, it was gone. I worked with a guy like that once. It was out of high school. I had this summer job working for a landscaping company in Iowa City, Iowa quality care. I had this buddy there that was, he was not on my crew, but on one of the other crews. And we got paid once a month. And this particular Monday, I came into work. We came into work. The crews are getting ready to go out and this guy's not there. Oh, where is he? Well, we went on, went on our way, got back to the shop later that day, found out that about middle of the morning, he had called the boss and said, uh, can you send somebody to Cedar Rapids to pick me up? Now, Cedar Rapids is about 35 miles away. He had taken his car. He had no car anymore. He had cashed his paycheck. That was all gone. He had nothing. Back then, it wasn't really cell phones. I guess he must have called from a payphone. He was gone. He blew it in one weekend, an entire month's pay. Similar to the prodigal son here. He blew it. What's he going to do? He ends up in a pig pen slopping hogs. Jesus said he came to his senses and realized a servant in his house, his father's house, had it better than he did. At least his father's farmhands got three meals a day, and, and he couldn't even eat the corn cobs that the pigs were eating. So he, he finally reaches this point of, of desperation and realization that, you know, I had it so much better in my father's house. How would his father re receive him? Now, scholars have found some stories from, uh, from tradition at, at that time that, that were actually similar. And I went on and Googled to try to find these stories and found one that, that Jewish rabbis had taught. It was a, a, not the same story, but similar in that a son had rejected his faith and walked away from his family and realized later that he had done wrong and came back. But in that story, the father said, no, you're dead to me. So I, I imagine as Jesus is telling the story to, to the, to the uh, Pharisees and those around, and he starts talking about this son who, you know, uh, did not respect his father and walked away, they probably thought, hey, we, know where, we know how this story ends. 
You know, the son comes back and the father crosses his arms and says, you made your bed, a lie in it. But that's not what happened. Jesus tells him this story and he puts, he puts this twist on it. And he says that the father, rather than having that attitude, had a totally different response. See, his heart was broken when his son left. And while he didn't chase him down, while he didn't stop him from going, he, he, he must have been watching for him. In Jesus' story, it says that he saw him coming from a long way off. So I just try to imagine what that might have been. I don't know, maybe, maybe every evening, what, what did the father do? But go out and look down the road, wondering where his son was. Would he ever come back? One evening, he sees this scruffy figure off in the distance. Scripture says he was a long way off. Could it be his son? But no, his son always walked with a spring in his step. But maybe. <laughs> no, this guy was, looked dirty and filthy. His son always wore the best clothes. But as he continued to look, there was something about the figure that he recognized. And, and the father realizes it's his son. And he did an amazing thing. In Jesus' story, he says the father ran to meet him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now think about this. In Jewish culture, men wore long robes. <laughs> Men wearing long robes, especially older, older men wearing long robes, they don't run. I mean, he would have to hike the, the hem of his robe up, and can't you just see that with this handful of robe in his hand? And he's running toward his son, undignified as it might be. And it says he kisses him. In the Greek there, is, he keeps on kissing him. I think we would say he smothered him with kisses. Here's his son who had come out of the pig pen, covered with filth. What a mess. Not the kind of guy you would kiss. It. And you know, you could, you could see if the father would say, hey, I'm glad my son's come. Send my servant down there. Tell my son, your dad is glad you're here. Now clean yourself up and present yourself to him in the study. But no, the father runs to him. Throws his arms around. Smothers him in kisses. that's a picture of our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe, welcomes you in the same way just as you are. God loves you enough to let you go, to walk away from fellowship with him. But he also loves you enough to run to you when you repent, and when you turn and come to him. And, and I, I want to ask you a question this evening. And, and the question is not where are you at in relation to God? Like, like, like let's say God is here. And, and my question is not are you right here or right here or way over here? My question is which way are you turning? 
Because see, you might be right here next to God, having served him all, his, all your life, but something this evening has you distracted. Something this evening has you turned away. And that's a dangerous place to be in because God will let you walk away from fellowship with him. On the other hand, you might be off the map away from him, but if you're turned to him, you're saying, Father, I repent, I return, he runs to you. Back at the beginning of the message, I said that our tendency is to look at the sun and say, oh, crazy, what is he, what is he doing? And yet, we as believers sometimes do that same thing. And I'm afraid in our church, in our culture, Many, many people in the church are here somewhat close to God, but we're faced the other way. Other things have our attention, whether it's wealth, whether it's pleasure, whether it's good things. Sometimes even our family. After the father and son were reunited, we, we see also that God loves you enough to restore you when you repent. The son said some important things. Two of his statements were right on. One of them was wrong. In verse 21, the son says, I have sinned against heaven. That was right. First and foremost, King David learned this as well. Our sin is against God, so he confessed his sin to God. I have sinned against heaven. Second, he confessed to his father, and I have sinned against you. And right again, one of the hardest things that, that for any of us to say is, I was wrong. I have sinned. Will you forgive me? But that's what the son was saying. But look at the third statement. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that sounds good on the surface. It sounds humble, okay, but he's missing it. He never did anything to deserve to be called his father's son. There's nothing that I did to be called the son of John L. Hershberger. I was just his son. And so his father, his father says, no, you don't understand it. I can't look at you as a servant. You are my son, It's not about our worthiness, it's about the grace of God. When his son returned and repented, the father refused to, to even entertain the idea that his son would be a servant. Immediately, the father commanded his servants to bring the best robe. He took that, that beautiful robe and lovingly placed it around his son, covering all the filth and dirt of his sinful past. And what a great image that is of, of God taking his robe of righteousness and putting it around us, covering that sin and filth from the past. The robe represents a restoration of righteousness. Sons often wore family rings that had the family seal engraved on it. Stamping the ring in wax and, and, and it was like a signature. The son probably had left with a ring. 
and maybe pawned it off, who knows. But anyway, the father puts a new ring on his finger, symbolizing his full authority as a family member, a member of the family. The father restores us when we repent. The ring represents a restoration of authority. Slaves didn't wear shoes, but sons did. So the father had sandals put on his son's feet. Our high school choir sang a song, um, All God's Children Got Shoes. It was an old Negro spiritual. And it actually comes from this story. All God's children got shoes. Saying slaves didn't wear shoes, but children, sons, wore shoes. So the, the shoes represent a restoration of privilege of a son. And then there's the barbecue, the icing on the cake. The father commanded his, his, uh, to kill a fattened calf and, and so they could so they could celebrate and feast. And that kind of thing was reserved for special occasions. And oh boy, was this a special occasion. I wonder if the father hadn't been fattening up a calf for just such an occasion. The barbecue represents a restoration of joy. Everything that the son left looking for, he found back in his father's house. There are other messages that need to be preached about the holiness of God. And as I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to make the case that this story gives us the entire picture of the character and the nature of God, but it gives us an important one, a really important one. He is a father, a compassionate father who will let you walk away from fellowship with him if you choose to do so. But he is also a father that when you recognize your sin and you turn to him, he runs to you. I love that imagery, him running to us. He's not saying, get everything in your life straightened out and then come present yourself to me. He's saying, turn to me, repent, and I will run to you. And if you do, he loves you and will restore you to you the joy and privilege of being in his presence and the fulfillment and provision of being in fellowship with him. As we close this evening, there's, there's kind of two, two levels um, that I want to talk about just a bit. One, in my, you might be in that story somewhere. You might recognize in yourself that you've walked away and you need to turn back to God. But there's another piece that I want to talk about, and that is for you as a church, as you think about your community and ministering in your community. There's many, many, many prodigals in your community. And what posture will you take as a church? What posture will you take as a church? Well, one, you know you can't go beat him over the head and say, get right with God and, you know. 
But there's also a tendency in our church to have this idea of clean yourself up, get yourself right, and then come present yourself to me. Oh, can we be a church that if we even see that turn in someone's life, if they even turn to look back to God, that we run to them, that we run to them, say, come on, come on home. I hope that's our hearts. I hope we can have that same compassion as our Father has for us. Heavenly Father, this evening, we thank you that that you love us so much that when we turn to you, you run to us. Lord, we recognize not a single one of us would be sitting here in this church unless you had received us so willingly, so openly. Father, we recognize that there are many more people in our community, in our surroundings, that are sons and daughters that you're calling back home. Father, give us your eyes. Give us your eyes, just as this dad in the story stood and watched for his son to come home. Give us those eyes. Oh, Lord, we get so busy. We get so busy doing church. We get so busy doing things. And I I pray, God, this evening that you would give us your eyes, that we would be looking. We would be looking, looking for that son, that daughter, just to turn towards you. Turn this way. Give us that compassion to run to them. We thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Any closing or we can, I'll just be dismissed. Okay. God bless you all. Have a